You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 12th of October 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, Brazil's presidential election. It was already ugly, it's getting uglier. My guests, Chiara Ramella, Paige Reynolds and Fernando Augusto Pacheco will be discussing that and the day's other top stories, including an upcoming regional election in Bavaria, which seems unlikely to go well for the forces of reason and moderation. An upcoming Met Gala, about which roughly the same could be said. And in times of trouble, whether political or personal, do you prefer this? Somebody! Help! Or this? merely staring blankly into the middle distance. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle 24's Chiara Ramella, Paige Reynolds and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Welcome all. And we will start in Brazil, where a presidential election, which was already weird and unsavoury, shows every sign of getting even weirder and less savoury as the two remaining candidates head towards a runoff vote on October 28th. Both, 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 both contenders, the far-right Jair Bolsonaro and the leftish Fernando Haddad, have urged calm after a series of attacks on journalists, activists and gay people, mostly by supporters of Bolsonaro, who has himself been the target of political violence during this election campaign, narrowly surviving an assassination attempt last month. Um, Fernando, first of all, there's been quite a lot of foreign uh, international, foreign indeed and international coverage of this this recent uptick in election-related violence. Um, Is it actually unusual in Brazil? Do Brazilian elections generally get a bit... um, Let's call it lively. No, I would say uh, the last ones we had since the redemocratization, they've been fairly peaceful. I mean, there's been a few fights here and there, you know, like normal as in every single country. I think this time it it is very much different. And you did mention in your queue that both candidates have urged calm. Yeah, perhaps Bolsonaro said, you know, that people that commit those acts of violence, you know, don't, uh, you know... They, don't, they shouldn't vote for him in a way. But I think he could do a bit more because all the, the cases that we have seen so far mostly are done by Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro supporters. There's a woman uh, in Porto Alegre in the south region of the country. Apparently she was beating up uh, by three men and, and they kind of, they did like a swastika on her neck with, uh, with a little knife. So things are turning quite nasty. Uh, and of course, Bolsonaro supporters, we're not all like this. Of course, I hope not, you know, especially when he got 46% of the vote. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I think Bolsonaro could and should do a bit more uh, to, 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 to criticize those horrible things that are happening. Uh, you, just to follow that up, you say this is unusual in Brazilian elections. What do you think is different about this one? Is it just the presence in the final two of a, a character as, as devi- divisive as Bolsonaro? Yeah. 
I think so. Uh, there's even a joke because Bolsonaro is very much anti-gay, but people are saying that the people that are out of the closet are the Brazilian fascists in a way, which they've been very quiet since uh, the military dictatorship. It was not cool to in Brazil to even say that you're right wing. You saw even those political parties that were clearly right wing saying, oh no, of course we're not right wing. But now people say, oh, you know what, I'm also actually anti-gay, you know, anti-women and, and maybe, you know, it, maybe it's our time in well, a way. And, and there's been quite a few people like uh, that. Uh, I think this is something that me and, me and Faye were discussing a little bit earlier, how unfortunately characters like Bolsonaro in Brazil, characters like Trump in America, um, even sort of, you know, the far right characters in, in Germany that we're seeing at the moment, what they're unfortunately doing is enabling attitudes which maybe we thought had sort of dissipated or gone away. We sort of convinced they were a bit more civilised now, but actually just not really the case. They were sort of just waiting for someone perhaps to, to legitimise this kind of behaviour. I think they, that's they, upsetting. They allow the people who think this stuff to feel like they can say it out loud again. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's the most worrying thing. Um, Chiara, uh, as we've been discussing, uh, Bolsonaro has appealed for calm. It did take him a while to get to that point. His initial response was a sort of with a, an almost visible, audible shrug. Uh, a guy with my T-shirt goes too far. What has that got to do with me, he says. Uh, it, it, there is a reasonably interesting question there, which is how responsible is any political leader for how the worst of their own supporters behave? Well, of course, there's no direct responsibility in a kind of criminal sense, but it goes back to what Paige was saying just there. It's the act of enabling some sort of discussions and, and behaviour that perhaps wouldn't have been acceptable before. Um, I also think that uh, that resonates uh, across different countries. You know, in Italy, we have seen a rise of, for example, attacks against um, immigrants and... and um, second-generation immigrants as well, linked to a, a general attitude of anti-immigration that, that's been spreading through the country. Um, what I think is dangerous is people who are likely and unhappy to dismiss the rhetoric as rhetoric and divide it from the actual actions that may be taken by a potential Bolsonaro kind of in charge as well. Um, because the rhetoric... Is, is hardly ever completely in a bubble. It often is linked to action, whether that's in, those actions are intentionally premeditated by a, by a Bolsonaro and its intentions or whether it just so happens to spread like many times uh, you can't control violence to be. And, and I think particularly in the case of, of Bolsonaro, a lot of these attacks are on uh, minority communities, LGBT communities. Um, and if someone is, you know, saying there are, Bolsonarista, and they're wearing a T-shirt with Bolsonaro's name on it. And Bolsonaro has come out and said that he'd rather his son were dead than gay. I think there's there are links to be drawn here that, that aren't just some kind of like indirect enabling. And you know what makes me angry actually in the Bolsonaro campaign? In a way, I have to admit it is a very smart campaign because, you know, he did say some racist things in the past, but he does indeed have an MP from his party and he's been very well voted and he's, he's black. And he say, well, how can I be racist if a, an MP from my party is black? There's a very famous makeup artist in Brazil. He's gay uh, and he's a Bolsonaro supporter. How can I be homophobic if I have a gay? But I don't connect those two things. Those are very kind of, it's very specific examples. And, and it doesn't matter if you have a, you know, a black MP or if you have a gay supporter, you're still homophobic, you know. It, it, it is the, the some of my best friends defense, isn't it? Yeah, oh, he does that quite a lot. <laughs> and I have to be honest, it is efficient. It does work for him. Um, Chiara, we, we have also seen an interjection uh, this week by a, a visiting rock star, which is, is 
not terrifically important, I suspect, in the context of Brazil's election, but I'm just mentioning this so I can make fun of Roger Waters for it was <laughs> he um, he took to the stage and sort of said various disobliging things about uh, Bolsonaro. Um, does the input at this point of a figure like Roger Waters make any difference to anything, do we think? Probably not, um, especially when he says something like, um, I remember the years of the dictatorships in Latin America, which feel a little bit um, coming from a a place of not really first-hand experience. And I think there is a complexity to uh, the Bolsonaro support that perhaps goes beyond just a simple, uh, you know, homophobia and and immigrant phobia. Um, So I think anything that feels like it, it... annihilates complexity never really strikes the right chord nonetheless we need to call out fascism whenever we see it so it's a it's a complicated one (laughs) well yes the the runoff on october 28th between bolsonaro and haddad whereas uh, pink floyd stay in the eternal (laughs) runoff with the doors for the title of worst band of all time Uh, let's move on and look at an election happening somewhat sooner and closer to where we are sitting uh, in bavaria which votes in a regional election on sunday it's widely predicted to go badly for the christian social union which has dominated bavarian politics for decades this would in turn reflect badly on angela merkel Christian Democratic Union, to which the CSU is closely related. The votes that the CSU are expected to lose are expected to be won by a resurgent Green Party or by the cranky far-right yahoos of Alternative for Deutschland. Um, Chiara, you are the only representative at this table of a country which has actually elected um, cranky populist yahoos to government. Um, are there any lessons that can be learned from Italy yet about the best way to to combat populist movements in a uh, in an election campaign? I mean, clearly, if there are lessons, they weren't learned in time for Italy. But is do, do we do we glean anything from that experience? Yes, I think we can. And obviously, the situation is still very complicated in Italy. And the reason why it's complicated is, I think, because the opposition is very fragmented. So I think what you need to oppose a populist front is an equally united anti-populist front that um, doesn't shy away from being very different. I think what we're seeing here, uh, specifically in the Bavarian situation, is a CSU that has been tempted into positions that are perhaps more right-leaning than it would they would have normally been such as, you know, uh, allowing stricter surveillance of suspects such as imposing crucifixes or allowing crucifixes in more in 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 more school um, classrooms um, that don't necessarily resonate with a centre right that feels squeezed out out of out of a position and and feels floating because is is left in the void of a of a united anti-populist front and needs to polarise as a result. Um, Paige, while I was earlier trying to teach myself all about Bavarian politics, I did happen across a quote in a piece in The Guardian attributed to the mayor of Degendorf, one Christian Moser, who does represent the Christian Social Union. Uh, And he said, and I think he may have explained all of modern politics in one quote, he said, fundamentally, people in Degendorf and across Bavaria are doing really well, but the AFD are playing with people's feelings. Anyone can make people nervous with the issue of security. We report the facts, but then they say the facts are false but those are the facts. I can't change people's emotions. That's the trouble, isn't it? People decide to believe a thing and it's really hard to change their minds. 
Uh, certainly, I mean that's that's an extremely astute observation uh, by Christian Musa. But I I do think the the CSU is in trouble. I think I think Merkel's in trouble. I think this has been a, a long time coming. Um, but you know the CSU's governed with more or less an absolute majority since uh, the the end of the Second World War, and for the first time in living history, it's set to fall below the forty percent mark. And some polls suggesting it could even hit the thirty three percent mark. I mean the CSU um, and the CDU have sort of been trying to. Um, sort of get votes back from the from the right. So when the sort of whole immigration debacle happened, I think they lost a lot of their conservative supporter base. And unfortunately, the AFD has managed to sort of sort of uh, hold on to that a little bit. Um, but also, it's interesting to look at the, at the, um, the Social Democrats party. They've also lost a lot of um, their voters as well. And it seems the Green Party is doing uh, particularly well. Um, there's another regional election in Hesse at the end of the month uh, where the Greens are doing particularly well. So I think it's it's a time to look at the sort of maybe the recalibration of, of the German political structure. Well, again, there's, uh, Fernando, there's echoes of that around the world. And I mean, it's possible, of course, uh, that the voters of Bavaria are just sort of spouting off to pollsters and when they actually go into the booth uh, on Sunday will retreat to the habits of several decades and, and, and re-elect the CSU. But but if they don't, and those votes diverge to uh, either Alternative for Deutschland or the Green Party, is this yet again a, a fracturing, a, a people or an example of an electorate losing interest in the centre ground. Oh, absolutely. But I think what will happen, uh, I, I think even if the CSU fall below 40%, I have a feeling that they might do a coalition with the Greens. You know, even Angela Merkel's party, I, I, I believe she was in a coalition with the Greens at some point. Uh, she was, I and, think so, yes. And, and, and I think this wouldn't be a problem with her. And, and, and I've read as well along all the pieces, actually, if the CSU doesn't perform that good, it would not necessarily be that bad for Merkel in a way because she her, her own party had some sort of disagreements with Dan as well. So if they lose, they're like, well, you should you, you should have listened to us in a way as well. So <laughs> it, it, it would be, be it's fascinating actually. I think, um, and, and I was I just wondering how big the Greens will be as well. Uh, I think they're expected to be like around eighteen percent. I wonder if they can increase more than twenty, for example. I mean, it's a reasonable bet if that does happen that any surge in Green votes will get rather less coverage, especially internationally, than an equivalent surge in AFD votes. Uh, Chiara, how much of that is being driven by? where this is happening. Are international media getting um, unnecessarily wound up about the emergence of a movement like the AFD because it's happening in Germany? I think it, no, I think it's an issue of recurrence of all of these movements across Europe. When you start seeing these far-right movements in France, in Germany, in Hungary, in Italy, then obviously uh, the far-right is going to become what in journalistic terms we call more of a trend than the Greens gaining ground, uh, simply because for now I think they remain a relative relatively less common occurrence across Europe as than other kind of far-right parties have been across Europe. Uh, one thing that I wanted to say on to um, Fernando's point, obviously there have been disagreements, like some amount of disagreement between Merkel's party and the CSU specifically. I mean, Seehofer, I think, has tried to distance himself from Merkel, essentially accusing her immigration policies and saying that that was her mistake. 
it's rather ironic that by himself pushing his own party further to the right, he's going to lose ground for his own party. And actually, his losing is probably what's going to make Merkel weaker rather than him gaining the upper hand against Merkel. Isn't that ironic that it takes for him to lose to weaken her power in the end? Well, we will doubtless be considering the results, whatever they turn out to be, of the Bavarian election on our programmes next week. For the moment, we will take a short break here. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Cara Ramella, Paige Reynolds and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. More shortly, do stay tuned. Mention the name Funkhaus in Berlin and you'll be greeted with excited curiosity or a mysterious smile from those in the know. The former communist broadcasting house got a new lease of life when young musicians hunkered down. Monocle Films set out on a tour of the stunning studios and recording halls. Funkhaus on the same wavelength, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Chiara Ramella, Paige Reynolds and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Let us look now towards New York and the announcement that the theme of next year's Met Gala will be camp. While this may seem akin to an announcement that the theme of next year's Super Bowl will be football, the Metropolitan Museum, which stages the extravagant red carpet wingding annually, insists that there is a coherent underpinning to the idea. It will be a celebration of Susan Sontag's 1964 essay Notes on Camp, which defined camp as, among other things, a vision of the world in terms of style, but a particular kind of style. It is the love of the exaggerated, the off, the of things being what they are not. And in so doing, she substantially predicted the modern Met Gala. Um, <laughs> Fernando, for, for the Met Gala, a theme of camp, it's, it's not going to be that big a reach for them, is it? Well, I, I, I reckon they've got this. I have to agree with you, because to be honest, <laughs> all, all, all the previous Met Galas, I mean, all the dresses I've seen, they probably would fit in this category. Uh, camp. But to, to be honest, in a way, it would give a lot of freedom. I think we'd be very surprised. I mean, I, for one, I do follow the Met Gala every year. I'm very curious about the dresses, you know, who is attending. It, it became like, you know, you know, the place to be seen sometimes even more than the Oscars, uh, in a way. And for example, this year we had the Heavenly Bodies, which was uh, special about the, the Catholic fashion. I mean, that was fairly specific. Uh, I think with camp, we should expect uh, some wonderful uh, dresses. You have to be creative, though because, uh, I mean, you really have to push uh, the boundaries in a way. I, I mean, I'm expecting an invitation. What the listeners cannot <laughs> see is that we are, of course, as usual, all dressed as pompadoured Edwardian aristocrats, uh, as, as we are every Friday on Midori House. And, 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 and has anybody noticed? Um, Paige, uh, Susan Sontag's original essay, which I think she wrote for The Partisan or The Partisan Review mm-hmm. uh, in 1964, um, it's one of those things that for, for cultural criticism to last nearly, what is 2018 minus 65? It's a long time. For a while. It, it's lasted more than 50 years. And the thing is, if she wrote it now, it wouldn't seem that askew. It kind of predicted the modern world in many ways, or it predicted a lot of modern popular culture, a lot of post-1964 popular culture. Um, the traditional means for going beyond straight seriousness, I'm quoting Susan Sontag here, which is why this instantly sounds much more intelligent. <laughs> um, irony, satire, seem feeble today, inadequate to the culturally oversaturated medium in which contemporary sensibility is 
Gould, Camp introduces a new standard, artifice as an ideal, comma, theatricality. That's a that's an awful lot of the modern world she invented right there. Yeah, certainly. And I, and I think Susan Sontag's essay came out in a time uh, right at, the, uh, at a point where, you know, the art world was changing a lot as well. So it was right at the start of pop art and where there was a lot of sort of um, satirising of our the way that we sort of consume everything and the, and the way that we consume culture. Um, and I think this idea of exaggeration and artifice, as we sort of become more, I suppose, consumptive uh, with, with culture, only becomes more and more pertinent. Um, and I think particularly when you look at things like um, how uh, camp fashion is is so trendy at the moment, that the use of irony is uh, is astounding, I think, even in very sort of highbrow modern fashion houses. I mean, if you look at Balenciaga, if you look at some of their um, outfits from last year or, you know, the, the, one of their big items, which is this crazy looking sort of very ugly trainer. I mean, that was ex- extremely camp. It was very extravagant. Um, and that sort of filtered down onto the high street now you can see them everywhere um, or you take Virgil Abloh and some of his fall collection for Off-White um, he had a little black dress and on the little black dress it says little black dress and that's sort of playing with the idea of, of, of how serious we should sort of take fashion and I yeah I think it's extremely pertinent I'm very excited I wish I was invited well, I, th- th- it could happen there's time <laughs> um, Chiara is, is there a, a, an element of camp at least a, as defined in Sontag's essay which does offer a, a certain amount of refuge to the scoundrel? And it, it, does it just become an excuse to uh, enjoy or indeed pretend to be enjoying? I can never tell which is which anymore. <laughs> just stuff which isn't very good. See, I don't think that because if postmodernism taught us anything... Which, is, let's face it, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you obviously haven't attended enough uh, cultural relativist courses at Goldsmiths College. <laughs> no, that, that, that is true. I, I have attended very few. <laughs> what, what I'm trying to say is that I don't think postmodernism is a refuge for anything and, and I don't think camp is a refuge for anything and if anything it's a, it's a display it's a, it's a showing the emperor's clothes um, so I don't I, I don't think it's, it's a way of f- f- like I guess avoiding uh, anything really so, so what what would we all be wearing? Were we invited to the the Met Gala? I mean, Fernando. Uh, I mean, other than what you've got on now, obviously. <laughs> and, and again, if if only the listeners could see it. Well, I did uh, have a thought. Uh, I think I would be all oiled up, and <laughs> uh, and I'll well, be wearing. Yeah, I, no, I, Fernando. Uh, let me repeat myself. As a watershed. Uh, <laughs> as, as opposed to what you're wearing now, I said. Oh no, no, of course. But I'll, I'll put some special oil on my face, like those wrestlers do, and I'll be wearing like a. a Velvet canary uh, suit, uh, canary yellow, I must add, um, and and no shoes, perhaps. Uh, Paige, Chiara, you have there an impossible act to follow, but do, do, do either of you want to have a crack at it? I'm going to get really literal. Um, in Susan Sontag's notes on camp, she said, the hallmark of camp is the spirit of extravagance. Camp is a woman walking around in a dress made of three million feathers. So... Ah. I think there's my outfit. And if someone doesn't do that, I mean, they're going to. I mean. I've literally got my outfit ready because I've worn it before. I've genuinely dressed up as um, Botticelli's Venus um, <laughs> in the past at a party. So it's ready. It's in the drawers at home. I just need to get the shell out. Did, did you have, I mean, what did you do about the shell part of the the costume? <laughs> The shell's the only part that wasn't quite movable, but I, I had a, a great deal of thread coming off my head as as her, you know, c- covering my 
nudity. But I wasn't actually nude. I was just wearing completely nude-coloured dresses. Well, tights and... and Okay, well, I mean, I mean, I mean if, 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 I'm if, curious, Kiara. Yeah, I'll show you pictures. If, if whoever puts together for the whoever puts together the guest list for the Met Gala is listening to this, and I'm I'm, I'm sure they usually do. What about you, Andrew? Uh, <laughs> you have some nice Hawaiian shirts. Well, thank you. I, m- m- maybe I would do that. It, it would it would be the only possible event at which I would seem a, a relative model of restraint and decorum. Um, but finally tonight, we will go back to where we came in, which was Brazil, where according to at least one newspaper report, and who are we to argue with that? A noticeable <laughs> number of people are taking refuge from the country's current political upheavals by watching somewhat counterintuitively horror films. A particular beneficiary of this tendency has been the new Corinne Hardy shocker, The Nun. Um, so basically what we're discussing here for at least the next five minutes <laughs> is, uh, is, is how, well, not how is their particular art to which we we grab or grasp in in times of personal or political upheaval and what kind is it fernando are you, are you a big watcher of horror films when things are already bad enough yes i am and, and i might explain why my fellow brazilians are watching so much horror as well you know why because what's happening in the horror film is worse than what's happening in the country so i think in a way that brings a little bit of solace so in people's lives the whole thing my country's going to hell in a handcart but at least i'm not being massacred with a chainsaw in texas <laughs> Absolutely. You got the point. You know, that, that's okay. why, and Brazilians, they love, su- you know, supernatural things. And, and it's a religious country as well. So when you have a film like The Nun, you know, especially an evil uh, killer, uh, you know, people like that. But that's not my I, 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 I don't think that's a spoiler. I think people can probably assume that yeah. The Nun wasn't going to be one of the good ones, or it, it wouldn't really be a horror film. But if you want to know what makes me happy when I'm quite depressed, I think uh, 90s dance. I mean, I think that's my secret for happiness. <laughs> Imagine my surprise. Um, <laughs> k- 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 Kiara. Well, I think watching horror films is a little bit like having the flu. And I quite like having the flu because it just... It just it, I really like feeling miserable and feeling like I can finally tell people when they ask me, how are you? I can say, I feel really horrible today. And you're allowed to wallow in bed for days. I think that's what horror films do. Talking about myself personally, when I'm a little bit disenchanted with the world and my personal life. Which, 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 which I'm sure does happen from time to time. Pretty much this is on repeat every night <laughs> yeah. I go home. And I always just watch the film Little Miss Sunshine. It just does it for me. It makes you cry, makes you laugh, and at the end you can just go to sleep and that's it, done. Paige. I, I really can't deal with horror films. I, I see, I'm, I, I'm with you on this totally. I just I, don't, I, I don't get it. I don't think they're solace. I think maybe like adrenaline and like fear for your life, but certainly not solace. Um, I also think, I think it's because I have a really overactive um, imagination. And so if I do watch a horror film, I can't just be like, oh, that was a film and walk out the cinema. It's like for the next two weeks, <laughs> it's just with me. It's like sitting on my shoulder, sort of like. But is, is, is that not what art is supposed to do? Oh yeah, but it just makes me weird. I don't think I'm, I don't think it's I don't think it's good. I just find them either. I mean, I, I don't enjoy them. I find them uh, unpleasant to watch. But I also just it's a combination of finding them both genuinely unpleasant and also boring and silly. Which is, I don't know, I, Not I, a good I, combo. I, I, I don't get it. Well, uh, uh, it's, it's funny because I'm a huge fan of horror films and, and perhaps like horror films and kind of an, and sunny dance pop, they have a connection because I love both in, in, in one way or Has anybody ever made a film in which a lot of 90s disco artists get massacred? 
there is a film which oh my god no 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 listen surely not no there is oh my god it's a canadian film it's called disco killer every time the man listen to disco he goes and kills someone and he was in the disco era it's a fantastic film disco killer listeners please do email us if you know that that film wonderful french canadian film Let's lobby Netflix. Yes. Uh, or, or we could just decide here and now that sometime between now and next Friday we should all watch Disco Killer and just spend... Just have this conversation <laughs> again on next week. Exactly. Just spend <laughs> half an hour, half an hour discussing it. Um, when we've talked there about film and, and Fernando has uh, invoked 90s disco. Do, uh, Chiara Page, do either of you have music that make, always makes you feel happy, whatever mood you are in? Probably, but I think I think I listen to music quite a lot. Um, I think when I'm sad, I think maybe I'm like extremely dramatic, but I like to feel like more sad. So I listen to like Joni Mitchell, Blue, or um, yeah, listening to Joni Jeff Mitchell Buckley makes me sad or... as well. But I suspect the reasons might be different. <laughs> what are the reasons? Just, it's the idea that people are actually listening to this. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> maybe Kiara should jump in now. My musical tastes on are never well liked on this show. It's quite upsetting. Um, I love listening to really trashy uh, stuff that I used to listen in my early teens, and I'm really upset because it just brings me back to a world where the concerns were, were quite different. Um, there was specifically um, uh, like songs by a Spanish ska quartet. I think it was a quartet. I'm not sure, actually. <laughs> a Spanish ska group called Scape. Probably not very famous outside the kind of southern Mediterranean region, but huge. No. In, in, huge. Incredibly, I've never heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> huge. Not on my radar. Especially in 2004, let me tell you this. And it used to be played at all demonstrations when we were demonstrating against uh, education reform or whatever there was to demonstrate about. And it just really galvanises me. But as for one specific song that I want to mention, uh, that's the Ronettes' Be My Baby. It just works that so is an absolute, wonderfully well. That is an absolutely belting pop tune. Um, at the risk of lowering the tone somewhat, I, I am going to advocate before we close that it is impossible to remain miserable all the way through any given live recording of ACDC doing For Those About oh, no. to Rock. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's got cannons in it lots and lots of cannons it's amazing uh, and that does bring us to the end of today's show if listeners could just imagine cannons while i'm reading out the credits that would certainly make me happy anyway chiara mella page reynolds and fernando augusto pacheco thank you for joining us here at midori house none of you are making cannon noises yet today's show was produced by fernando research by martha libri our studio manager was david stevens music next at 1900 it is the menu with marcus hippie we'll have more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200 i'll be your host for that as well midori house returns on monday at 1800 london i'm andrew Mull- have a great weekend.